and every 20 seconds someone gets divorced. You know, here in Australia, over 60% of people will live together now before they get married. Two-thirds of marriages now take place outside of a church. Over half of married men admit to having had an affair, and that's only those who admit to it. And people enter and leave and re-enter sexual relationships more often than most blokes change their underwear. See, I'd be surprised if there's more than 20 people here tonight who have not been affected directly or indirectly by either divorce or adultery in their own family. And so I was thinking this week, is there any surprise that the younger generation just mock marriage? Even the older generation say, just go with the flow. <laughs> Times have changed. And what does the church do? The church doesn't quite know, quite know, doesn't quite know what to say, so they say nothing about it. Well, let me say it. Marriage is in crisis. Marriage today is in crisis. Let me highlight four areas. Cohabitation. We've reached a stage where most people, yes, most people will cohabit before they marry. In 2001, one in three people were cohabiting, either leading to marriage or after a first marriage or, or just for fun. No intention of marrying. Now, by cohabitation, I mean living together in a sexual and social relationship without being married in the eyes of the law. And even amongst the over 60s, 40% of Australians over 60 would encourage a young person to live together before they're married. At schools, our kids are taught it's okay to experiment to see whether you're sexually compatible. And the concept of waiting until you're married is, well, that's laughable, isn't it? So there's no stigma attached to living together anymore, it's just the norm. It's not even assumed that marriage will follow, it's just an alternative lifestyle. And it's not even the case now that once kids come on the agenda, then you get married. Cohabitation is an issue. Children. I have to say, children today is almost like a lifestyle option, isn't it? With couples marrying later and more and more women wanting a career and not children, kids are now just an option, one option amongst many. So people sit down and they talk about whether they can cope with kids financially, emotionally, lifestyle-wise. And kids, I was chatting to someone this week, their kids were seen as a bit of an inconvenience. Do you know that over 50% of conceptions now take place? outside of a marriage and that doesn't include the the one in five yes one in five that are aborted that's all you know about so people they choose when to have kids and if they don't want it well they, they pay the doctor to take it away and, and contraception is so widely available that the national average is now 1.6 per family well below the average needed to repopulate this country Divorce. Here's a true story. An entrepreneur in America. Listen to this, guys. This guy saw a money-making scheme. He did this. Wedding rings for hire. So what he did was this. You could hire a wedding ring for a weekly fee. And if, if after one year you were still married, you got a congratulations card and you've got to keep the rings. And that guy is making money out of it. 
It's funny, but it's not funny, is it? Because it shows you the stats about divorce. Divorce rates in Australia edging one in two. In the UK, it costs the UK taxpayers twenty-five billion pounds, sorry, twenty-five billion dollars a year. Divorce. What about sex? Sex has shifted from from procreation to just recreation. So instead of sex being about seeking to satisfy my husband or my wife or my partner, sex is all about me. It's my choice and my right, so I sleep with who I want, when I want, and I decide when I stop sleeping with them. And I think sex has become a bit of a saviour, hasn't it? So you know, if you're not having sex, then you're only half a person. And sex is portrayed as being always easy, always pleasurable, always beautiful. There's no mention of the real facts that, that one in four women find sex more painful than pleasurable. And a third of all men suffer sexual dysfunction at some point in their life. And almost one in six women are sexually abused, either within a marriage or outside of a marriage. And let me say, if I get one more email telling me I need Viagra or a bigger penis... Or if I hear one more advert about, was it AMI, nasal technology for premature ejaculation, I'm going to go crazy. <laughs> it is everywhere. I was to listen to Nova 969 this week. They were talking about a Christian pop star who was a self-confessed virgin. And they found that utterly, utterly laughable. Because, hey, you just sleep with who you want when you want it. That's why I say marriage is in crisis, because of cohabitation, because of divorce, because of kid choices, and because of sex. And tonight I want to go back to the Bible, back to God's blueprint, because marriage isn't defined by culture. Marriage is not just a social institution. Marriage is an institution given by God. Look how the Bible describes marriage. It's on your screen. It's Malachi chapter 2. The Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you've broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Your marriage covenant. A covenant, friends, is like a... It's not like a human contract. Because in a human contract, you decide the terms and conditions. In a human contract, you can opt out at any moment. A covenant is a binding agreement with God. It's defined by God, it's witnessed by God, it's sealed by God. It's that agreement that you're going to live together in a sexual and social union till death you depart. So whether it's a civil ceremony or a church ceremony, whether you're married outside or whether you're married in... I don't care where you're married. If you're married in God's eyes, then there's a covenant happen. You're bound by God together. I want to ask two questions tonight. First one is this, God's purpose of marriage. What is God's purpose of marriage? And secondly, what is God's pattern of marriage? So firstly, God's purpose of marriage. What would you say is the purpose of marriage? Why do you get married? Why did God create marriage? Think about it. What is God's purpose for marriage? My guess is most of you are sitting there thinking children and companionship. And then probably the other way around. Companionship and then children. You know, you quote at me that procreate, fill the earth. And you quote at me, it's not good for man to be alone. Companionship and children. Marriage is about comfort and companionship and affirmation and sex and kids. Let's go back to Genesis, back to the Bible. Because when Jesus was asked about divorce, he went back to Genesis. When Paul was asked, he went back to Genesis. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. It's on page 1 of your Bibles. Let's see God's purpose of marriage. Page 1, 
Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let us make man in our image, our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, of, and all the earth. So why did God made man? He made us with dignity and with a task. The dignity is there in verse 26 because we're in God's image. We're in God's image. We're made to be like God. We're different to the animals. Both male and female in the image of God. There's a task, isn't there, verse 26. Let them rule over the fish. Let them rule over the earth. Or verse 28. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish. Rule over the birds. You see, God's world would be crazy, out of control, unless someone was given authority to rule. And that responsibility, my friends, is given to, to us, to human beings, to rule God's earth. Back to our question, why did God create marriage? If Genesis 1 is a bit of sort of a cold, functional, almost scientific, but Genesis 2 is warm and it's relational because, because man's in the garden and man is told to work the garden and care for it. And everything is good. God sees it, it's good and it's good and it's good. But one thing's not good. One thing is not good. The first thing that's not good is down in chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. It's not good for man to be alone. So is that the answer? That marriage is God's answer to, to loneliness. That's what you think, isn't it? Man is lonely and, and the pets don't meet his needs, so God creates a woman and calls him his wife. That's how most of us think. Subtly, that's how we think. It's all about companionship and loneliness. So if you're sad, if you're lonely, find a husband, find a wife. Fill that void. But friends, think about it. If, if loneliness was a problem, why didn't God create another man? You see, throughout the Bible, it talks about loneliness, but the answer in the Bible to loneliness is not a wife. The answer in the Bible to loneliness is actually the church family. God's people gathered that are supposed to care for each other and love each other and show compassion to each other and have that companionship. We fail at it, I know. So why is it not good for man to be alone? What is marriage all about? Now where is man at this point? He's in the garden. And what is man doing? He's working the land. See, man is not in the garden just to enjoy the garden. Man's in the garden to care for the garden and work the garden and rule the garden and serve the garden and guard the garden. And verse 18, no suitable helper was found for that task. So what man needs is not just a companion, not just another bloke, he needs a, a co-worker. A co-worker for the, for the garden. Look again at verse 18. I will make a hel helper suitable for him, or literally, a helper like opposite him. A helper like him in the image of God, same worth. But a helper opposite to him, complementary, different, but a perfect fit. And that is why God made woman. As a co-worker. A perfect fit. Complementary companion but to work together in the garden. And that's where you get this shift. Genesis 2 is fantastic. You get this shift of emotions from, from disappointment because there's no one to help him. And in verse 20, verse 23, well, there's delight. The man says, it's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh shall be called woman. He's almost saying, oh, wow, she is wonderful. He looks at Eve and he says, you are beautiful. But there's more than just sexual attraction. It's more than companionship. It's, a, it's like... This is my co-worker. 
this is my co-worker to live in God's world and to serve him together and to work the land together. Now, have you got it? Why did God made, make marriage? Not, for, not just for companionship, not just for sex, but as a co-worker, to serve God together. For Adam and Eve, there's work to be done in a garden to watch over. It's, like, it's a picture isn't it, of the, the lover and his beloved putting their boots together and walking out into the garden to work the garden together. So what does it mean for us? See, we're not in the garden, are we? We long to be in the garden. We long to be back in Eden. We long for heaven. What's the, the work, the task that God, God's called us to do? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. It's on the screen. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know the labour in the Lord is not in vain. So if you're a Christian, if you're someone here tonight who has said, Jesus is my saviour, I'm trusting in his death on the cross for my sins, I want to live with him as number one, if you're a Christian, we've got a new task, not working in the garden, but, but working for God. Labouring for the Lord. Sharing the gospel. Telling people about the great resurrection bodies. Growing God's church. That's the work. And dare I say that's God's main purpose of marriage. God provides a husband, God provides a wife, not just for companionship, not just for sex, but to do God's work together, to serve him together. Read your Bibles, Romans 16, Priscilla and Aquila, what are they doing? They're working for the gospel together. And this, if you get this right, it transforms your whole attitude towards your marriage. If you're married here tonight, you see, if marriage was just about companionship, they would all be about you. And you as a couple would withdraw from everybody else. You don't need anybody else, you've got each other. If it's just about sex, well, you just spend your whole time in bed. It's about working for God, serving together. And the right questions to ask in your marriage is this, how can I serve God together? How can we serve God together? You may have completely different personalities, completely different hobbies, different gifts, but the same goal. And that goal is, how can I serve God together? And as you do that, you know, as you, as you share your faith together, as you offer, offer hospitality, as you lead a Bible study group together, as you do music together, you actually find that you grow in your intimacy. And you're growing your love for each other. So if you're married here tonight, the question is not what, not what hobby can we do together, but how can we serve God together? That's the question. If you're not married, it transforms who you, who you do marry. Because you don't just look for the person who will, you know, be compatible in all these different areas. The question is, can you serve together? Is this a person who I can serve with in the course of the gospel? And it transforms your attitude towards kids as well. Let me just say at this point, there may be people here, and I know there are people here, for whom childlessness is a real issue. One in seven people struggle with childlessness. And I want to recognise how painful that is when I talk about kids, but kids are, are a great blessing from God. And I have to say there that we as a church should be grieving with those people and weeping with them and crying with them and comforting them. But when it comes to children, if your attitude is our marriage is about serving God together, it transforms your whole attitude towards them, doesn't it? Because if you ask the question on, on family feuds, you know, why do you have kids? The top answer would be, well, because we want them. Or because, you know, I want someone to look after in my old age. 
And the Bible says, now you have kids because they're a blessing from God, but remember the task, serving God together. You bring kids into the world so that they can know God and love God and serve Jesus. Join you in that task. Remember Abraham who was promised many offspring. Why many offspring? Because they to be a light to the nations. Well listen to this verse from Malachi 2. Malachi 2.15 In flesh and spirit they are, they are one. Why one? Because God was, seeking, God was seeking a godly offspring. Not just any offspring but a godly offspring. See, you bring kids into the world not just to nurture them, not just to educate them but to bring them to Christ and then see them serve Christ together. Read your Old Testaments. Israel as a nation, one generation passed where they didn't teach people about, about God. And what happened? Within one generation, within one generation, a whole generation didn't know about God. If you're married, the question to ask about your children is, well, let's pray for them, they come to know Jesus, and let's pray they serve Jesus. I was chatting to a lovely old couple at a church in Waniasa in Canberra. They've got three kids, Every day they prayed their kids would come to know Jesus and they would serve him they would serve him on the mission field. It's a brave prayer to pray, isn't it? All three kids are Christians, all three kids are overseas. Let me ask you, if you are planning to have kids or hope to have kids or have kids now, what do you long for for your children? Do you care whether they work at, as a brain surgeon or at Bunny's warehouse? What you should be praying is that they come to know Jesus and they come to serve him. Because as a marriage, as a family, that's a purpose. Yes, companionship, but not just companionship. Yes, sex, but not just sex. But serving God together. Working the land together. Secondly tonight, God's pattern for marriage. God's pattern for marriage. It seems weird to have to define marriage, but I think I need to. What is marriage? Flick over to Mark chapter 10. The second point is shorter, by the way. Mark chapter 10, and verses 6 to 9. This is Jesus speaking. He says this. He's asked about divorce. And he says in verse 5, It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Verse 6, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. What God has joined together. Do you see how marriage is not just a human bond? It's not just a social bond, it's actually a divine bond. God gels them together. God seals that marriage. They're no longer one, but they're two. No longer two, but one. Now, as a, as a mathematician, I find that really hard. One plus one equals one. They're one flesh. There's a oneness, a completeness, because they're joined by God. They don't join each other, they are joined by God. They're joined by God in a public ceremony. Look at it. Verse 7, for this reason a man would leave his father and his mother and be cleaved to his wife. There's a public leaving of his father and mother. You're replacing one family relationship, the parent-child relationship, for another, the, the husband-wife relationship. And I know that most people today leave their, their family home a long time before they get married. But in the Bible, throughout the Bible, whenever it talks about a wedding, it's a very public gathering. Now why is that? Why is a wedding a public thing? 
Think about it. It's a public thing because people want to show that they are supporting that marriage, that they're encouraging that marriage, but more than that, but society is publicly recognizing that you are now one. That you're standing up before people publicly and saying, we are now one. I was chatting to a friend of mine back in the UK. She's not a Christian and she's, and I've spoken to her this week and got permission to share this. Um, she cohabited for seven years. And she phoned me back in January time and she'd split up with her partner. And she said this, she said, no one really cared, no one really grieved with me and I'm really sad but no one else is. And I'm thinking, well, I asked, I asked this, well, did people really know that you were together? Had you publicly said, we are together? It's the thing about cohabitation, isn't it, that there's no public declaration, no, one, no witnesses to the fact that you've agreed to do this. Whereas in a wedding, you stand up before people, before family, before friends, and say, I commit this person for life. Do you remember in the Bible, there's a guy called Abimelech in Genesis 20, and he's scandalized when, when Sarah, Abraham's husband, is, is, pretends to be a sister. Why is he so scandalized? Because he doesn't realize that she's somebody else's property. Again, that's the thing about cohabitation, isn't it? That you don't quite know who is someone else's property. But the public thing makes it very clear you're joined by God to a death you depart. Thirdly, sexual intimacy. The Bible is packed with sex. Genesis 26. Isaac is caressing his wife Rebecca. Song of songs. A delightful, erotic love between a husband and his wife. Well, here in, 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 in Genesis 2, you know, they become one flesh. One flesh is not just sex, but it's emotional oneness, it's, it's mental oneness, it's spiritual oneness, but it is sex. Because sexual intimacy is the, the most oneness you can get, isn't it? It's the most intimate you can get. That's why in Genesis, remember in Genesis 2, they're, they're both naked, but they felt no shame. Nakedness in the Bible is, is when you're exposing your, your private parts and... It's the most vulnerable thing you can do, isn't it? But it's a safe place to do it, and that safe place is called marriage. The place to express your sexuality. We have sex not just because we're like animals, desperate to relieve tension. It's not just about procreation. You can do that in a lab now, can't you? Sex is about expressing your oneness with your wife or your husband. And that's why the Bible urges you, encourages you to have sex in a marriage regularly. Just flick over to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. It's on page 809. I'm going to read verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duties to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. The wife's body doesn't belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body doesn't belong to him alone, but to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. See, the Bible says that sex is so good and so beautiful and so intimate. So in marriage, keep having sex. There's that mutual obligation because your body is her body, and her body is your body. And I know that's misused, I know that's abused wrongly. But there's something beautiful about when you say, it's about you, not about me. 
And the Bible says, health permitting, the only reason to stop having sex is what? Verse 5? So you can pray together. But even then, for a short time, in case you're tempted to slip into sexual morality. If you're married, keep having sex regularly. It's a way of expressing, expressing your, your intimacy, your oneness, your one fleshness. I talk to a lot of people who, not a lot of people, some people who have had affairs. And time and time and time again I hear the same story. You know, we stopped having sex. We stopped having sex and then we stopped communicating and there was a woman at work and you know she listened to me and then we went for a drink and then you know that that drink became a touch and then a touch became a hug and a hug became a kiss and then off to the bedroom we go and the bible says if you're married keep having sex regularly one person at Moore College says have sex every day now I'm not married and how possible that is but but regularly because it's that sign of warm fleshness Fourthly, faithful monogamy. Just as Christ is faithful to his people, just as God is faithful to us, as husband and wife we're called to be faithful, to be steady, persistent, and faithful to death you depart. Look at Hebrews 13 verse 4. It's on the screen. Marriage shall be honoured by all, the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. The marriage bed kept pure, because faithfulness means no competition, no rivalry, it's integrity of your own heart, no sex with anybody outside of that marriage partner. See, the, in the Bible, the idea of a sexually open marriage, it's just a contradiction in terms, because you're one flesh with your wife or your husband. The Bible's pretty clear about adultery. Listen to this in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's God's will that you should avoid sexual immorality. Avoid it. 1 Corinthians 6, flee from it. Flee from it. Be faithful to your wife. Let me lay my cards on the table. All sexual acts outside of marriage, all sexual acts outside of marriage, are wrong in God's eyes. See, what you're doing is that you're, you're actually robbing somebody. That's how the Bible describes it. You're wronging your brother, 1 Thessalonians 4. Because someone who is not your one flesh, somebody who is actually one flesh with somebody else, you're robbing them of that one fleshness. Somebody who you, you may marry later on who has already been one flesh with somebody, you've robbed them of that. And the thing about unfaithfulness is it always seems attractive, it's always secretive, but ultimately it is damaging to every single marriage. And God says, no, be faithful. Don't play with fire. I want to urge you, please, friends, pray for our married couples here at church. Will you pray for them regularly? That they will be faithful in mind, in thought, in action. That they wouldn't flirt, they wouldn't be tempted. Would you join me in praying for them regularly? Because God says, let what, what God is doing, let not man separate. And sexual unfaithfulness is the most damaging thing possible. Pray for them. There's order in marriage, you know, wives and husbands, the way they relate to each other. I could talk about lots more things. It's permanent, it's lifelong, it's thoroughly dependent on God's grace, isn't it? You need the gospel to see forgiveness and forbearance and patience. Let me say one more thing, just one more thing tonight. 
one important thing, this is it. There's no marriage in heaven. There is no marriage in heaven. At the restoration, marriage will be excluded. What did Jesus say? Matthew 22, verse 30. At the resurrection, the last day, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. There's no marriage because there's no, there's no more death. There's no marriage because there's no, no more need for procreation. There's no marriage because there's no more work to be done, is there? There's no marriage because together we're just serving and worshipping God. So I want to urge you here tonight, don't idolise marriage. If you are married, don't idolise it. Rejoice that God has provided a partner to, to serve him together, but don't idolise it because there'll be no marriage in the last day. Don't exclude people from your marriage because you're going to be with them for eternity, worshipping God together. Don't separate yourselves out from the rest of the body just because you're married. There's no marriage in heaven. Enjoy it now. Don't idolise it. And if you're single, if you're single, praise God that, that that's a gift. We'll look at that next week. It's a gift that you guys, you've got more time to serve God. But don't idolise marriage. Sure, pray for a partner because it's good to have a partner to work to serve God. But rejoice that in heaven there's no marriage. You and the multitude praising God for eternity. I want to urge as a church to take marriage very seriously because marriage is in crisis. Marriage is in crisis. I want to urge the married couples here to take their marriage vows very seriously. To love each other. To continue to have sex with each other. To serve together. And if we're single, if we're single, please don't idolise it. Let me say, there's lots of lonely people in marriage as well. Please don't idolise it. And pray for your brothers and sisters who are married. And rejoice that God has been kind to them. And next week, we see the way that God has blessed us as single people. So a moment of silence. Then we're going to sing. And I'll ask some of your questions.